From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, hacks, hacks, more hacks and more hacks, Alipay's push to take over the world, and raccoons shut down a Canadian bank. All this and more on today's Fintech Insider News. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the amazing and ever-growing 11FS office in WeWork London. That's the Oldgate Tower one, for those who know it. My name's Jason Bates. I'm from 11FS, a challenger consultancy that helps banks, insurers, capital markets, asset managers, and basically everyone do things that are truly digital, from coming up with new propositions to actually launching them in the market. Today, I'm joined by my lovely 11FS colleague, David Breer. Hello and Simon Taylor. Hello. Where have you both been this week? Yeah, so there was that little thing at the Lords. Um, that was quite nice. Um, that, that's not the cricket ground, right? <laughs> no, the House of Lords uh, in the Palace of Westminster. They were kind enough to invite me to talk about the future of uh, blockchain in the UK, blockchain policy, what are they going to do about ICOs and that sort of stuff. And I think uh, really exciting, really forward-thinking people and obviously a lot of client work and people talking about how do they get the best and what's the right time to invest in blockchain and really make, make a go. I do love it though. Basically, he put on like his best fintech insider T-shirt to go to their, their House of Lords and discuss this. It was pretty cool. It was a clean one and an eleven FS hoodie. Nice, David. Uh, busy week. I am basically turning into being a recruitment person right now, which is uh, kind of a full time effort, which is nice. So uh, yeah, most of my time right now is uh, trying to fill up the list of uh, opportunities that we've got based on some of the things that we're doing either in 11FS or with one of the banks we're building, which is super, super cool. So uh, a bit more sleep next week might be nice. But, yeah, uh, I've I've been feeling it. Uh, lots of new work, lots of new proposals, new propositions in wealth, new digital propositions in credit cards, loyalty, some vision work for one of the big players. Uh, I just need to sleep this weekend. I have to say I'm a bit disappointed we're doing a FinTech Insider News not in front of a live audience this week, aren't you? This feels <laughs> feels weird. It's like quiet here. What's going on? Anyway, I feel like this is going way off track. And, uh, you know, as I'm on point this week, I feel that's my responsibility to bring us back around. Luckily, we have some guests to keep us in line as well. Joining us this week, making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Valentina Christensen from Oak North. Thanks for coming on the show, Valentina. How are you? Very good, thanks. Glad to be here. And how's your week been? Uh, it's been good. It's been pretty busy. We've had um, a few a few deals that have closed. So um, yeah, it's, it's been good. It's never a dull day at Oak North. I'm sure. And alongside Valentina, am I saying that right, by the way? Yes, you are. Yes. Boom. Take that, David Breer. Smug. Uh, <laughs> alongside her, we have our resident core banking guru. It's Andra Sanea. How are you doing, Andra? Hey, very well. Thank you. Have you been busy this week? Uh, preparing workshops for our clients and preparing to start a PhD next week. Ooh. Starting a PhD, back to school. It's the thug life right there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Let's get on with this week's news. So first up, David, you're going to talk about Monzo, which slightly freaks me out. Uh, Monzo tests in-app energy provider switching feature. This is a, an, an interesting one. So this is uh, Monzo have come through and, and started implementing some of the uh, new features. So they've, they've rolled out to, I think it was 95 current account holders that they've got, uh, the option to kind of jump into one of the partnerships that they've actually gone through. I, I think this is an interesting one, but there's, as it was sort of pointed out by some of the people over on fintechinsidernews.com, it's, it's kind of like Monzo. Monzo are not quite on the front foot on this one to a certain degree. So, you know, there's actually quite a few companies out there. Yolt is one of the examples that the guys were sort of talking about that have sort of done this one already. Um, it's good to see, I think, Monzo starting to probably bizarrely follow in the footsteps of, of Starling with some of the partnerships. And it did actually highlight in the article something that I didn't know, which was that the uh, head of partnerships over in Monzo is former Facebook, which mm. uh, pretty impressive hire that they managed to get that, uh, that guy in there. So, I'm sure there's something interesting coming, and it actually does reference that there's about 70 or 80 companies that these these guys have actually been looking to partner with that are coming through in the, the the pipeline. So at the peak of this, if we've got you know 70, 80 different types of partnerships on the platform to really kind of expand out on the uh, the, the current account offering, then that starts to be quite impressive. 
there's nothing wrong with a me too play um it is definitely a me too play as you as you point out uh but that next set of partnerships is is going to be the really critical piece who are they going to be and, and what value is it going to add because the thing about a marketplace bank as we've talked about it with starling and with monzo and others this is where you start driving value for customers this is where you start making a difference i want to see this go live i have a horrible feeling that trying to manage lots of partners could be really really difficult and painful is it going to work i want to see it um jury's out for me yeah but i think it's also i mean it's really the first time we're seeing also a bit more of the the revenue model that they're trying to put in place i mean obviously if you read their um annual accounts that they were losing about 55 pounds per customer i think so i think they said that of the 13 of the 95 current account holders they tested this with who actually did uh do the switch they made about you know 40 or 50 pounds so i guess this is sort of helping them to go some way to making up some of that that loss i I think it's an interesting model though isn't it because essentially what's happening is they're they've gone to market before most people would actually go to market. So like the the balancing out of sort of losing money over sort of cost cost of acquisition, actually, it's sort of slight false economy, isn't it? You know, most people would still be in the lab trying to work out what those things were and wouldn't actually have, what is it, 350, 400,000 customers now. So it's a it's an interesting sort of dynamic that's sort of playing out. But, uh, you know, good to see those guys start uh, releasing some features and functionality. And uh, hopefully this sort of uh, starts a bit of a, a stream of that stuff coming. Yeah, well, um, and I'm sure a lot of it is down to Phil Hewinson, who is their new uh, head of partnerships and uh, the sort of platform side. So Phil originally was at Facebook for as a strategic partner manager around their product partnerships. And before that, head of audience network at EMEA. So so if there's anyone who knows that sort of partnership world, then it's got to be sort of Facebook as you get into that. But the energy uh, switching sort of integration wasn't my favorite uh, Monzo integration of recent days. I don't know if we spoke about the Deliveroo uh, one recently, where if you buy something on Deliveroo, then in some way it seems to work out whether you're a Monzo customer. I don't know whether that's looking to see if the app's on the phone or looking for some key or some some link scheme that's in there. I don't know how it works. But essentially, if it sees that you're a Monzo customer, it gives you the opportunity to split the bill with end customers through through your Monzo account. So I love this uh, this idea that not only does banking live in your app and sort of live in that web chat, but it actually lives in the apps you interact with, sort of out there in those end-to-end journeys. And I think that's a uh, it's a great thing. In fact, on our Pulse platform, we have a video of that, which is which is pretty cool. When I read this, I, I was wondering how they have implemented it. I haven't seen the feature uh, the feature uh, live, but uh, it, it it seems to me like it's a sort of an offering, or it should be linked to to an activity in your account. Even if uh, looking at the comments on the on the forum, people didn't understand how they were targeted and so on. It was impressive how much attention uh, drew uh, among uh, customers. I cannot imagine one of the big banks uh, doing something with such a small number of customers and everybody even noticing. (laughs) Well, of course, once the the current account's in full flow and your utility bills are coming out, then you can see how the end-to-end journey becomes much richer in terms of seeing that there's a utility bill or electricity bill and it's 20% higher than it was and how does that compare to everyone in your street? And actually, you could move to one of these suppliers and you can really see how that might come together. And what I like about this is it's a trend that we need to see more of. It doesn't matter to me so much that it's Monzo. It doesn't matter to me that it's happening in the UK. If you're in the, wherever you are in the world, something that's just kind of useful, it's helping me switch bills that also changed the revenue model of financial services is really interesting. The traditional banks aren't necessarily thinking in terms of a new business model. They're trying to think of net present value and how do they lend more and how do they charge more in fees. This is potentially proving that a new business model might work. Forget Monzo for a second and think about the business model. That's, That's my key point. If I may add, I think uh, also the way it, it was implemented is, is interesting because before, if you look at Lloyd's, they tried to do something similar by implementing Cardlytics, which required a uh, huge initial investment, uh, delivery, blah, blah, blah. But this is more punctual. So you can uh, hook and unhook depending on how uh, successful it is and uh, um, 
it's amazing. It's a completely different. Point, yeah, it's a but completely that, but that's different. That's how the how we designed the original information architecture. You know, it was always made to be extendable. That you know, the fact you've got a feed rather than a statement enables these kinds of messages to to make their way into the uh, into the app. I think a, a lot of thought has to go into the banking app, not only as an app that's going to show transactions, but how actually you start to build in, uh, you know, new new features and functionalities and services. Well, and, and that's, you know, the argument for why some of this stuff is actually easier to do from scratch than it is before. You know, I know when, when I was at Lloyd's, the implementation for that features you're talking about, Andrew, actually just interjecting stuff between transactional element on statements was a bloody nightmare, quite frankly. So, you know, doing doing that from from fresh, you know, makes it far easier, I'd say. Well, from one challenger bank to another, Valentina. Uh, I see that there was a host submitted on fintechinsidernews.com by Alex, Alex S. Uh, Starling aims to fly with $40 million fundraising. Yeah, I mean, this is um, also an interesting one. I think this is um, primarily because they're looking to sort of go go global. I think they're starting with the um, Republic of Ireland. They got their their banking passport for um, for the Republic of Ireland in June, and they sort of I think that the press release was uh, sort of saying first Ireland, then the world. Uh, um, but um, it would be interesting to see if uh, if this fundraise actually is in different tranches, a bit like their last one. I think we saw it was that once they got their license, then they would get sort of the first batch of funding. Then once they sort of reached another milestone, they'd get the next batch. So it'll be um, interesting to see if that's the same with this one. So uh, what do you think this this funding's for? You know, well, Before I get to the funding, I just want to talk about how cheeky that headline is. You didn't do it justice. Stalling aims to fly. Uh, come on, like, <laughs> just can, can we just give that some love? Uh, totally didn't get that at all. But yeah. <laughs> and the funding, I guess, I mean, as Valentina says, it is about international expansion. But what I think is interesting about that international expansion, they've started with the Republic of Ireland. And the Republic of Ireland, of course, post-Brexit is in the EU. And it gives them access to all of the EU regulation. And it gives them access to potentially all of the EU markets whilst staying English speaking, whilst having access to Dublin from a tax perspective and the talent that's in Dublin. It makes a lot of sense. I think it's an interesting strategic move. Uh, and I want, I, I want to look into this more and see what the investor makeup looks like. But it's interesting that it's one of those trade-offs between focus on one product, one territory, one thing, and really nail it, versus actually Starling are doing like a hell of a lot. They've got their sort of faster payments integration play. They've got their current account push. They've got their marketplace. Now they've got Ireland. You know, if you say don't don't fight a war on two fronts, this is like five fronts that you're you're pushing on. So I, I'd argue that I'm sure a fair amount of this 40 million is actually about scaling the team and, and trying to deal with you know, expansion on five fronts at the same time. This is very different to what you'd see in traditional tech, where you'd have one single product and you could go global because doing, uh, you know, sharing pictures of your cat that disappear uh, are very, very different to getting regulated in a number of different jurisdictions around the world and managing people's money. And I think people in tech sometimes forget that finance comes with that regulation overhead and the difficulty of being regulated. Uh, and, and your point about focus is, is really interesting as well, because in the world of tech, you do one thing and you do it extremely well uh, and potential criticism of Starling but or maybe it's just ambition is they're, they're starting on a lot of different fronts it's international expansion and it's lots of different integrations and lots of different products all at once I think this is great right why settle for one revenue stream when you can have like five right you know and actually I, 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 to be honest I, if they can do this I think this points to them having seriously good technology in, inside because actually if you can scale up and have five or six different teams running at these different things and not bumping into each other then actually it kind of points to them probably putting everything in place that they should have done well I've been really impressed by Revolut as well recently who just seem to consistently smash it in terms of new feature new territory new functionality you know, they're really sort of uh, there. Are, there are some fintechs out there who are just consistently delivering new on a regular basis, and that that takes effort, especially while scaling with you know two and a half thousand customers a day or something that they're they're growing at. Yeah, technically, I don't think they have now a problem of scale uh, because they have completely new tech. So even if they add half of Ireland, they shouldn't have. <laughs> A problem of a problem of scale, but in terms of team, uh, yeah, you're right. It um, it requires effort to expand to a new a new territory, and I think it's the first challenger bank that we see doing uh, contingency planning for Brexit. <laughs> Get off the island strategy. It keeps coming back, right? So moving on. 
submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fintech McFintech Face. Uh, I think actually people are now just picking names that are actually hard for us to say. Uh, It's actually Ollie, is it? Um, Here's a story in programmableweb.com, which I I remember from a long time ago in terms of a directory of APIs. I think the last time I looked, there was something like 11,000 APIs listed on programmableweb.com. So someone's listed or suggested an article that's entitled W3C Payment Request API is now being implemented in all major browsers, which sounds huge. Does I mean you think about the major browsers being Firefox, Chrome, Safari, and then Internet, whatever it is these days. I don't know what I my Edge. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> just like sorry Microsoft, but come on. Uh, <laughs> but this this is the idea that uh, there's a simple API that is comes from W3C, of course, the standards body that defined HTML and CSS. Most of the standards that we use to consume the internet today are defined by this body, and this is defining a really simple way to accept card payments and for those card payment details to travel across the internet really easily, either from your bank or from some other card provider, so that when you're going to make a payment, those card details would be pre-populated really easily. And there have been some apps that have done this, some fintechs that have done it, um, sort of like a last pass, but for your card details for, for quite some time. But making this a standard is really interesting because instead of going, if you go to buy something from your favorite online retailer, it's it's proven fact that 65% of people drop out during that cart journey. There's so much dropout because there isn't a one-click payment. And we'd seen Apple Pay and Android Pay and others, and we talk about them a lot on this show. This could be a real flip because how will those tech companies that have been trying to own that payment experience or Visa and MasterCard and banks that have been trying to own that payment experience react to an interoperable standard? Uh, And also what I like about this is it's not just for the desktop web and browser-based web. It's also going to work with some of the apps themselves on mobile devices. So how that integrates and plays in the mobile space will be really, really critical. Although I don't see it as such a big thing because... Because I, I, in fact, I was talking to Mike Kelly uh, a few minutes ago about how it's interesting to use the W3C model in banking APIs and how actually there's a, a place in which standards are great, but in, in the web world, implementation then led on to standardization. And I think that's the case here where we've seen Chrome for a long time actually have, you know, remember your card details and the not remember your CVC code, you know, the secret three digit number, but the expiry date and which card would you like to, to use? And because we've seen a few nice implementations, now the guys have got together and said, actually, if we look at who's doing everything, to, you know, how that all works, let's let's just standardize it so that it, you know, everyone really knows how it works. Yes, there is a standardizing something that was sort of already happening bit to it. But I think that's why the mobile side of this is more interesting because, yes, they've kind of had that in the mobile version of Chrome and the mobile version of Safari for some time. But as that creeps into the app ecosystem, that's where it starts to really interfere with how the payments plans of these tech giants was really running Um, but also we've seen W3C try and do this for at least a decade Um, they've been trying to get payments on the internet working in fact since the early 90s so whether or not this actually becomes a thing or not is is, is a fair fair question I'm with you on this one Simon I think they've been having a crack at doing this for a long time if they were going to do it I think they probably would have done it by now and uh, I think this is probably going to get consumed by other things doing this slightly better than they are I think this initiative can eliminate many use cases for which PayPal is used nowadays. So basically, it, oh. it eliminates the intermediary between the merchant and uh, and the user. Why is that? Why is that? Because, um, um, for example, you had a merchant um, who wanted to take payment from a party and from a user and would use PayPal, but not, basically what you had in PayPal were your card, credit card details stored and it was a convenience for many to, to do that. But now you have it in your browser directly. So, so the PayPal so the merchant, value so add the merchant, is... Yeah, so the merchant would be able to provide basically the same experience that PayPal used for, mm. for Without many. PayPal. Just that one-click one button sort of yeah, press. Yeah, but yeah. like keychain in Safari does this already, right? You know, like literally... Safari? And this and this was Jason's point, right? So Chrome does it, Keychain does it in Safari. Like, the browsers have been doing this for a while. It's now a standard. But what it's kind of missing is that PayPal button. It's kind of missing that thing that I click that... 
yeah. So the implementation in the merchant websites in a standardized way that 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 it's missing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would say I think you know it probably comes back down to the. Um, I think perhaps the perception of the trust here, because when you look at, uh, you know, I don't know, Amazon or, or apps like that, that I have on my phone, where it is very much that that one click. And I don't think I've really been on a computer and actually put in all of my card details for a really long time. And, you know, if I was thinking if I was at work, and I wanted to buy something, I wouldn't probably wouldn't put it into my work laptop and put my card details. So I think it'd be interesting to see sort of the transition. Uh, and it's interesting you bring up the sort of Amazon one click feature because the IP around that, the patent has just expired. So actually always is about to expire. I don't remember the exact date, but it essentially enables all merchants in order to be able to deliver that. So it's interesting that actually a combination of this and the ability to put to put your card details in once very easily uh, because you're using Chrome, Safari or, you know, whatever browser you'd like in order to do that. Combine them with the ability for now every retailer to have that one-click, you know, functionality means that you may only put your card details in once into Chrome. You select or, or Safari, uh, David. Um, am, I, uh, am I the only one who uses Safari still? In the world. Really? In the world. <laughs> Thank you, Apple, for making it just for me. Um, but this, th- that, that gets interesting then, that you never type it in. You know, you type it in once, you select it, you press the button, and now every retailer uses one click, uh, and away you go. And that's also, I think, that's where it becomes a bit dangerous as well, right? Because then, <laughs> then I just think, oh, I'm not really buying anything. I'm just kind of putting it into my lovely basket. And then suddenly you look at your, your bank statement and you realise, actually, Especially I've got after a, lot of a few drinks on a Friday night. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is the thing. It's going to be interesting to see if, you know, how it translates, uh, you know, and, and whether retailers will see an increase in, in sales because you won't have that drop off. Dangerous or profitable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of perspective, isn't Dangerous it? Dangerous or fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think we should do a, a poll on that, though. Like, I, I'm convinced that nobody actually knows what card oh Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and nobody actually knows what card they've got on record at amazon i I think that's like i i almost don't do really (laughs) yeah pick which one i use depending on where i'm at in the month Um, what for amazon yeah i just i I just press that one click button and it's like it arrives in my house i don't worry about the (laughs) all right money bag (laughs) (laughs) moving on something submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by i don't know someone called val christiansen Who can uh, that be? I don't know. Uh, dun, so dun, dun. the story is uh, this $5.3 billion offer for Nets is the latest sign of a payments M&A binge. Valentina. Yeah, I mean, this one This one caught my eye just because, um, so I'm, I'm Danish, so Nets is a, a very big uh, Scandinavian-based um, uh, payment services provider. They've got about 2,400 employees, they do about 7 billion uh, transactions a year. Um, and basically, a US private equity firm, Hellman Friedman, which has... A, number, a very diverse portfolio, so investments in sort of NASDAQ and um, Formula One, and they have essentially made a $5.3 billion uh, takeover bid. Um, and I think it's just, you know, I think David actually commented on this, just saying that it's another example of the sort of merging of payments providers in the market. You've seen so much this year, obviously, and Financial was trying to, uh, is, is currently uh, going through the, the process of taking over MoneyGram. PayPal's acquired Swift. Obviously, they're not, they're not a payments provider, but it's still, they're sort of, more and more of these providers, I think, you're going to see. And uh, it's a bit like the banking sector. You know, if you look 400 years ago, there were loads of providers in the UK, loads of banks in the UK, and now there's sort of the big five and then us guys. And what I like about this one is because Nets have been uh, in analyst reports, uh, if you look at their annual reports and the analyst responses to them, for some time people have been saying that they're a potential acquisition target, that's why their share price is interesting and so on. They're a good business, very profitable, uh, year over year, little bits of growth in a great market that adopts card payments really well in in Scandinavia. Uh, They've been quite innovative without being uh, unsafe. They're, They're not on the top of the list of companies that you've heard about breaches and like Heartland payment systems in the US and several others. So this is kind of slap bang in the middle of they're not a quote unquote fintech. They're an oldie worldy payments vendor, but they're an effective one. Uh, and what's private equity going to do in a market like Scandinavia that has been very, very uh, fast to adopt things like Swish, customer KYC, uh, some of the bank ID type stuff we've seen over there. Like, what are they going to do? I'm really excited to see with private equity cash, what's 
their growth potential? Are they going to take nets into new markets as a, as a payments processor? Are they going to look to uh, develop new products for Scandinavia? Uh, I'm, I'm going to watch this one closely because I'm a payments nerd uh, and see what happens. Well, it's interesting that the fintechs that have been spun off of banks that have been the most successful are in that sort of Venmo clone territory. Yeah. Swish, uh, Vips, yeah. uh, Tiki uh, from ABN AMRO. There's this almost model that people are following of actually there is this need for this peer-to-peer payment thing even in pretty evolved uh, territories and banks can get together in order to make that happen pretty quickly but still that's a territory by territory model and you've got to think that there's some there's something powerful in starting to pull those together and make it happen but i, I think those things are sort of dwarfed by this though aren't they like the like you say like the money rams and the and and these guys and uh, even into um world pay you know actually with everything that's gone on like these are like big, big organizations. I think my my point was for every sort of big company that's bought, there's a bunch of people leave to go and start something new. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think the, you know, particularly on this story, I kind of think with, with all of the sort of regulatory changes since actually a lot of these companies have actually been created and actually obviously technology becoming cheaper and easier to kind of get into, then, you know, what's going to be the, the sort of uh, interesting sort of saplings that are going to be grown off the back of this one because I, I kind of think you know payments has been an area that's been sort of continually disrupted that actually with what we've seen with people like Klarna you know you can just scale ridiculously quickly in this space so you know this is 5.3 billion great what's going to kind of grow off the back of this would be the interesting thing well i guess then moving on to the big daddy of them all the alipay story we can't do an episode i think without doing an alipay story and this was submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by jeff teeson of capco our friend and show uh, co-show host at some point i think alipay strikes more overseas partnerships if you could get a more generic headline that could be used every week <laughs> I, I challenge you to come up with one so simon yeah, it's the ongoing trend, right? So Alipay here has forged relationships with some government organizations that handle trade and commerce in Finland and Sweden. So yeah, as you say, as we're continuing the Scandinavian theme here, if it happens, apparently they'll have access now to 2.4 billion bank accounts and mobile accounts across 200 countries. I think there's some PR stuff going on there. <laughs> I mean, yes, we've talked again, as, as Valentina mentioned, about the uh, potential acquisition of MoneyGram that they've been trying to get done. Uh, but the real key here is this is the continuation of their strategy. They, they have a giant home market, and what they're trying to do is follow the tourism. As Chinese tourists leave, they're going through all of the popular destinations and trying to follow those tourists. And they've been quite open about this being their strategy. In fact, Rita Liu, the head of uh, rest of world outside of China for uh, Alipay, has the head of that. the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, that was a shorter way of saying it, believe it or not, without naming every continent. Uh, she talked about that on a previous FinTech Insight episode i can't remember which number it was but they've been really clear that that's their strategy but the thing i haven't seen them do yet is establish a foothold locally in market they've struggled to really get taken up in africa they've struggled to really get taken up anywhere they've gone outside of that home base so yeah they've got access to 2.4 billion bank accounts but they're not really taking hold in india although they've got the part acquisition in paytm and they're not really taking hold outside of that so Follow the tourist is nice, but I think they're taking hold everywhere. And it's not just that they're... But I'm not saying this, that in the numbers. This follow the tourism thing is step two. The, here's, here's the you know the grand master takeover, mwahaha plan. Now we're going to buy everything. Yeah. So one, start in China, become dominant. Two, then convince every other country in the world that they should implement your payment scheme in the big retailers because we're China and all of our, our people come over and buy stuff from you. Step three, oh, look, we're accepted by all of the big retailers and we're a new scheme. Take over the world. Like, um, and step 2.1 is probably invest in and or buy uh, similar players in similar territories. I mean, this is... You know, that's the the plan that I think everyone's seeing coming and no one is, is being able to do anything about. I, I call bullshit on this strategy of, of uh, don't worry, we're just doing it for tourists. It'll just be fine. <laughs> there are like, just 500 millions the of them. <laughs> but they haven't acquired the things yet. They, they've struggled to get MoneyGram. They've 
when I see those acquisitions coming through, then it'll happen. To Jason's point, yeah, I'm sure it will happen. Step two is coming, but I'm not seeing it in the numbers yet. I'm not seeing it. Companies that are doing well bend over backwards to show you their metrics and go, hey, the metrics speak for themselves. Companies that aren't getting traction never show you their metrics. This is a company valued at $470 billion. All right, so they're doing all right, but they've got a heck of a home market. <laughs> <Much> like, <traction. laughs> they've got a billion people in their home market. That's right? attraction, yeah. But it, I guess, you know, one, one hope against this mammoth takeover move is that when you've got open banking APIs and you've got actually bank-to-bank transfers from where my salary goes in every month to be able to then instantly pay to other people's bank accounts, you know, that's interestingly a payment scheme alternative that's evolving as an open ecosystem uh, and against a you know a giant behemoth of a of an organization you know maybe the the coalition of everyone in this open ecosystem will will in some way balance that <laughs> moving on so submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by thomas he's like prince he just has one name mm-hmm. that's him uh, aussie banks scrap atm fees David. Yeah, I think this is a quite an interesting one. Actually, the uh, Australian banks have been pretty well protected for it, it's like that Galapagos Islands thing. You know, it's, they've been pretty well protected until the uh, sort of uh, changing of the regulatory landscape and actually where customers' expectations are. So um, these guys have been getting away from from what I understand from a, a, a pretty uh, pretty robust briefing from our friends at RFI Media Group today in terms of the Australian market, then, uh, you know, the uh, views of um, pretty poor technology has allowed them to get away with a $2 fee for every cash transaction that was actually being taken out. This is kind of being scrapped in most of those cases, although it still feels like there's probably a few areas where uh, where it's not going to be. This is going to cost them £130 million of revenue uh, in terms of scrapping these fees, but it feels like the type of thing where I'm like, really, in this day and age, charging people $2 to get their money out of a cash machine? It feels weird to me. Although a couple of things. I mean, firstly, it said only $130 million, as if it's very marginal. You know, that's... that's yeah. like, <laughs> um, But I mean, even, you know, I just thought when I read this, I was like, I mean, I don't remember... I mean, the last time I went to an ATM was actually today, and I was really annoyed because I was... I needed to get my heel re-healed. And the guy wouldn't... Uh, he doesn't take card. He only took cash. So I was like, oh, God, I don't even know where the nearest cash machine is. So I had to go and then take the money out. It was quite nice. I did get the first like ten new ten pound notes. I got a, got a chance to see that. So that was Ooh, that was swank. Like, and then you oh, had yeah. to give it away. Oh. I know. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, but that was I, I was kind of thinking. You know, I mean, do people actually? How many people actually use cash? You know, I mean, and and go to an ATM. And I was thinking, you know, when I was uh, you know going to Japan earlier this year, I used my Monzo card, and I was sort of taking cash out largely because I thought, yeah, yeah I'm not going to get charged overseas. So that was more. Oh, of the- you're one of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but you know, I, mean, I, thought, I was just wondering when I read that article. I thought, you know, how people actually uh, actually use ATMs really. Going back to sort of Scandinavia and Europe generally, we are a very cashless society as as societies go, and especially in our fintech bubble, we do think that way. But not every market's the same. Australia and especially the US is still quite cash heavy in in, in their usage. They still make up uh, nearly fifty percent of all retail transactions if not more in, in 50 60 70 percent in some countries but only because it feels really good to carry dollar bills like you can carry <laughs> a big wad and feel like super the old rich. greenback just has yeah it, 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 i blame hip-hop for that uh entirely but this is i think there's a different trend here of removing fees as a business model like this is something we've talked about a lot uh and uh the this idea that fees are the way i make money from people it it feels like it's passe now it works it's effective sometimes you have to do it sometimes you've got a cost and some but the atm fee in your own country for non-customers is the kind of thing that they i think if i remember correctly somebody's probably going to correct me here that the uk banks tried to introduce maybe five ten years ago and then there was such a public backlash against it that they they actually didn't get away with it Uh, and maybe it's just kind of one of those things that uh it's just a sign of the times that because getting access to your own money from uh, your bank's card albeit in somebody else's atm just seems ridiculous and this isn't one of those atms that sits inside like a retail store or a convenience this isn't a late night i've had a few drinks and i'm willing to accept two pounds 50 in charges because i need that kebab (laughs) (laughs) tuesday this week (laughs) i i can neither confirm nor deny that rumor so before we move on to the next story we'd love to hear from our sponsors 
The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to ft.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors. And just quickly, before we get back into the news, we never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the week. Uh, But don't forget, you can head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we've discussed and lots more besides. You can sign up, join in the discussion, really get involved. And who knows, maybe you'll be mentioned on the podcast. So tell us what you thought about this this week's stories and really get involved with the debate. That's fintechinsidernews.com. So moving on. The first story of our next segment, Deloitte hit by cyber attack, revealing client secret emails. Who gets this poison chalice? David gets the gets the story to tell. All right, I'll step up to the mic first on this one. And it's actually kind of quite an interesting one. It's, it's amazing what is called a cyber attack these days, really, isn't it? You know, because essentially, I'm not too sure if you guys have read through this. This is essentially somebody not turning two-step verification on, on uh, the admin for email. And that is considered a cyber attack in terms of the the sort of simple nature of actually getting through these things. I do think, though, that that's the kind of thing that should be becoming hygiene right now. And their password was admin too. No, I'm joking. It wasn't. Really. <laughs> but but I, I think the you know the severity of this one probably can't be understated given the the sort of what Deloitte do but at the same time just part and parcel of like living on the internet and being part of the the sort of digital world means that things like this are going to happen and I, I don't think it's necessarily what happens when it does it's actually how you respond to that and actually how you sort of you know talk to people about it what do you think Andrew? Uh, so I think it's quite an unfortunate thing to happen to Deloitte especially because they are uh, the most profitable security consulting uh, services in the world, if you didn't know. Uh, so apparently they, they, they said that it, it was due to an admin account somewhere in Nashville. So this is where that attack started. And they don't know exactly if they uh, kicked out the, the, um, uh, the hackers yet. What I find very interesting is that after the attack, the security researchers have combed the internet for for info to see if they find something. And they found that a Deloitte employee wrote the um, Deloitte VPN access controls on his personal Google um, account. Oh. They also found, yeah, they also, and they were there for six months. And they also found that thousands of hosts were exposed to the internet unnecessarily. So the attack happened uh, through the remote desktop protocols, more, most likely. It's, uh, it was brute, yeah, a yeah, brute force attack on, on that. It is double uh, or triple uh, unlucky for the Deloitte employees because in 2014, during the Sony hack, um, what was uh, made also public was a file with all the salaries and the names of the Deloitte employees. Uh, so a former employee of Deloitte was hi- was in working in Sony and had this file on his computer. So imagine if you blend the data, what was hacked during this email attack, what was the, the information about about position salaries and so on, plus the Equifax stuff. Well, so that's the thing here, isn't it? We've seen not just Equifax and the Deloitte and Sony, but we've also had uh, Verifone, DocuSign, and many others just this year. That blending of the data, if I go and buy all of that data combined, what can I do with it? I guess the challenge there is, though, how this data is sold on dark markets is usually piecemeal and it's not cheap. The people who hack this are hacking it for profit. They hack that data and then they hoard it and then they sell it on dark markets. So actually getting access to this as, as one big file, the, the fear that people have about that, some people will want to expose it, some activists will want to expose some of the some of the bits and pieces, but then there is, and I'm sure there's a lot of people just dumping data, but that's not always the case. Yeah. And I think also that, you know, sometimes we get 
hackers a little bit too much credit. I mean, a lot of the time it's just ba- it's just human error, right? I mean, and and obviously working in a bank, I have, I didn't really realize this. It was this, this is the first bank that I worked at full time, and when I joined, I had to go through loads of of sort of tests uh, around cybersecurity to make sure that I was sort of protecting the bank. And it'd be just interesting, to, you know, a lot of I think a lot of businesses haven't really thought about that, you know, whether it's and how often the, that should change that set yeah. of tests because it's not the same test that you did last year or the year before. It needs to evolve every year. But the and but the internet and the way that we interact with the internet is so open. Everyone has emails, there are attachments, there are, you know, all kinds of ways of transferring and moving files that that we need to work in order to work, to, to do business, because it's becoming a, a world of partnerships and platforms and actually interacting with other businesses. And you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg with GDPR coming in next year and the, the need then to actually report data breaches. Like, I think that the, the isolated events you're seeing now are going to become a snowstorm because the complexity of the number of systems that are out there, the millions of people who are working in all of these companies who are interacting in different ways to try and get their work done and uh, therefore being open to this kind of attack. is it, This is just going to be a common thing. Like, I just don't think it, we're going back to a world of p- pure security. We're going to a world of data breach as an everyday occurrence. And on that lovely note, (laughs) let's move on to our next story submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by our very own Michael Bailey. Thank you, Michael. Uh, CBS's Showtime caught mining crypto coins in viewers' web browsers. Yikes. So, David... I, I think this is amazing. Like, well, so just just to sort of recap on this, somebody's uh, implemented some JavaScript code on two of Primetime's biggest websites to use idle time for processors to be mining this this sort of cryptocurrency. You know, who's the criminal? Who's being punished in this one? Because it it's using idle time. They were saying, uh, unfortunately, it's using up to about sixty percent of the CPU capacity, which is it's stealing prob- electricity. Probably a little bit. It, yeah, but they're watching TV. This is just happening in the background. So, like, who who's being sort of punished for this? Well, malware's been doing this forever, though. You go to some dodgy website uh, if you daft enough to do that you go to some dodgy website you go to, <laughs> i go to some dodgy website one, one goes to yeah, a dodgy yeah. website one uh, someone one goes to a dodgy website and they would experience so suddenly oh i wonder i mean my parents have been turned on do, do you I know what, this it, it, my parents are the worst for this uh, especially my they go step- to dodgy websites no <laughs> like finally we talk about simon's mom <laughs> my mom's brilliant she's an angel don't you dare uh but it, it would usually or it'd be some family member who's like why is my laptop going really slow and i'm like well have you been trying to stream movies off the off the sites you found off the top link on Google? And it's like, yes, if you try and just get content by doing those shortcuts, you're going to end up on some website where there's a load of malware. Now, historically, that malware was just doing a DDoS attack. It was just trying to ping somebody's internet server to knock it over. If it was Amazon's server or uh, Lloyd's server or some bank server. But now, these people who are on the dark web have found a different thing to do. If I can put an insert into a website instead of just trying to ddos somebody i can why don't i mine cryptocurrencies that'd be a good way to make some money and and what i love about this is i'm gonna diatribe david I, I, i'm gonna do it don't, don't stop me in full flow bro don't stop me I, i'm going what i love about this is like i know this is a bit of a bit of a leap but We've seen that uh, ad blockers have been really big in the tech space as a, as a conversation for the last 12 months. And what's interesting about that is when I ever go to uh, Business Insider or Fortune, it's like, hey, turn your ad blocker off because we kind of need some revenue. Well, what about mining cryptocurrencies whilst you're on a website as a way of paying for it? In fact, there's a website called Steemit that has this internal currency to pay for content. I do think there's a new business model underneath here it just happens to being being exploited by people uh, that are doing it in a malicious way which again doesn't help the view of cryptocurrencies being ooh scary bad but there's ingenuity here but it's a victimless crime, surely. It's like, not a victimless crime. My CPU only me. got so much life. Bro. Yeah, the annoyance of suddenly your entire PC slows down and you're like, what? why can't I use this Word document or Excel? Oh, I've got my browser open in the background and it's mining Monero. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> idle CPU usage. It's not idle. So, but, but, it's stuff like, that I can't was... use because I'm because something else is using it. But, it. but if this was like unlocking the DNA, like in terms of, you know, like mapping DNA in terms of how that, that was done 
time prior to it. Yeah, but it's not. Expanding our galaxies. <laughs> Literally, they're making money. Like, what's wrong with this? This seems like an amazing thing. Yeah, but you could be making money and they are. So I'm just I mean, saying, it- every 11FS laptop, it's on there. <laughs> <laughs> I do my own security, bro. I feel like there would be a really good Black Mirror episode in here yeah. somewhere. There you go. There you go. So moving on from one uh, unethical comment by a CEO to uh, Equifax boss leaves after data breach. Wow, that was, Simon. That was smooth, dude. Do you like that? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> he's, become, he's trying to take that Segway King title away from me. So yeah, as we know, Equifax had uh, a big, big data breach. 143 million Americans were impacted uh, and around 400,000 people in the UK. Uh, the data captured included social security numbers, birth dates, addresses and driving licenses. And as we know, Equifax are one of the major credit rating agencies. So every time you go to get a financial services product and they do the credit referencing check on you can you have a loan can you get a credit card they're calling equifax or call credit or experian and they're one of those three companies so this is quite a major part of financial services for any lending product that's done either in the US or Europe. Uh, but what's interesting here as well is because the boss has left, three senior executives sold shares worth nearly $1.8 million before the breach was publicly disclosed. Apparently, the CEOs agreed to stay on as an unpaid advisor during the transition. But I got to think, like, if there was ever insider trading that the sec is going to look at like knowing your share price is going to drop on selling shares although our analyst benedict suggested it wasn't a lot of shares that they held that was, was sold but still yeah and i think it was not only this as a i mean many people classify um Equifax's reaction as misconduct for a number of things so they uh they knew for 40 days so more than one month that the hack happened and they didn't inform anybody they didn't inform people what i find astonishing these people that they call customers they are not customers because they want to do business with Equifax. If you want it or you don't want it, you are a customer of, of Equifax. You are the product, yeah? So they were treated with disrespect. Then they put on Twitter a link when they announced, they announced to everybody, and they put a Twitter on link, which was a, a, a phishing link. So go here. <laughs> and put your details in yeah. to find out if you've been hacked. Ha- harm yourself even, yeah, harm yourself even, <laughs> even more. And then in the process of signing up, you would give up your rights to go to court against them if, if uh, something yeah. happened. And I was like... What? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you were a sort of experience, you'd sort of think this is the gift that keeps on giving just every every week or every day. There seems to be some something else that's, you know, horrific that they've done uh, to manage this this crisis. And one thing I did think, which was um, which was quite uh, interesting, it was a, a sort of follow on article, um, uh, an op ed um, from Elizabeth Warren. She's a U.S. senator in, in Forbes. And she was talking about how she's um, she started uh, a Freedom from Equifax Exploitation Act, which I thought was really interesting. It's the, yeah. the free act, um, essentially, where you can uh, you're just sort of saying all your information is so valuable. So actually, you know, these these companies are making billions of dollars a year off of selling your data to, you know, credit card providers and banks. Uh, and they're saying, you know, this is a way to make money out of that. I can see loads of hands. Going exactly. <laughs> uh, because uh, and what's interesting here is that those credit agencies are being attacked on a number of sides. On one hand, you've got things like GDPR, you've got the push towards privacy, I own my own data, which arguably the credit agencies, you know, go against. Is there any uh, request that actually by applying here, therefore you put something that's in some database in a far off land? But secondly, you've got, uh, you know, the credit reference agencies use the way that you've applied for previous financial products as a way of actually defining whether you're a risk or not. And we're moving into a world of of deep data, of wide data, of the ability to look at whether you buy Rolos or Twix or something at a candy store, you know, in order to work out whether you're a good, you know, you're a good bet or not. So you've got lots of banks, lenders, financial services companies looking at ways of training a model that once it gets pretty good, it's going to be better than the credit reference agencies. And then all of a sudden, like that, that's that gone, isn't it? Absolutely. If 
Equifax and the credit rating agencies in general were better at the job, they in the age of data is the new oil, they'd be one of the top 10 companies in the world. Uh, because really the companies that are exploiting data are the likes of Google and Amazon and Facebook and so on. That advertising revenue model is the biggest thing happening in the Western economy. And so they have not moved with the times, both in terms of their business model and in terms of their security. And I think they're being found out. Data squatting and uh, mining that data as a business model for the likes of a Google can be remarkably profitable if you keep up with the times. If you don't, then yes. I, I mean, I've talked with a number of um, financial services organizations like, what do we actually need the credit referencing agencies for? We get a score from them, but then we end up having to ask for so much more information to be able to decide whether or not it, it's one component in a much bigger piece. And surely this is something that would either A, be decentralized or B, B, be something I would do through API calls. And why do I need a credit reference agency in this day and age? And we leave it on that. Moving on to the next story, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Jamie Hill. Uh, payment by vein, trialed in supermarket. Is this some kind of vampire payment mechanism? <laughs> Valentina. So if you've seen the picture, you sort of stick your finger in this little capsule and then it, it, it will tell you whether or not it's it's really you. It kind of made me think, you know, like when I, with my iPhone, right? So it's 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 enabled through through my fingerprint. And you know, if I'm eating like a, a you know pack of crisps or something and then I try to get into my phone, I can't. I've got like Dorito dust left on my finger and I can't get into my phone. I was thinking, you know, this is going to be, it can actually slow down the process. You know, if I was picturing going on the tube and someone's, you know, trying to put their finger and it's not scanning, at least with an Oyster card, you know, or contactless payment, you know you're going to go through and there's not going to be any, you know, grubby finger nonsense. I utterly despise this thing. Like... <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I hate it. Somebody somewhere... And so this is uh, Barclays that are pushing this on their corporate customers. And God bless the shock for Swanee. He's, uh, he's, he's in this article on the BBC saying, I can see why a number of corporate customers might like having a new way of authenticating payments. Now... This device has been around for some time. It's Hitachi that are the people that are hawking this thing. And I'm sure there's something going on for them to try and push it. As Valentina said, it's this big, ugly, clunking thing that nobody wants to use. And my issue is, what problem does this solve for consumers that isn't already solved? And I get it. Somebody somewhere likes that technically I can tell the person's alive, so it's slightly better than just a fingerprint scanner. But like... Oh my God, this is so lame. It's like that kind of thing that a big old company does for no good reason, for no business case. That, like, okay, if, well, if, if Google or somebody or Apple were adopting I'm try this. And, I'm going to try and defend this. So, give it so, a go. It's so, indefensible, man. <laughs> so, we like the story of Alipay in that healthy KFC in China that was using face facial recognition you walk into the store use facial facial recognition to see you and then use your phone number to verify that it's you and this isn't so different you know in some way with tokenized card numbers with different ways of doing payment it gets to the point where you don't need to bring your card out. Actually, all I need to do is I go down to, you know, Tesco or Sainsbury's. I pick up my stuff. I put my finger in the thing. I either say something or put my phone number in. Or I don't need a card anymore. It's actually biometrics as a payment mechanism. And it is more effective than fingerprints because you can see the flow through. And I can feel like the whole room against me here. But I'm going to defend this sucker, even though I'm not sure I agree with it. Okay, let's go, Andrew. Here, I have so much more to say, but Andrew, I can no, feel no, you need one, one, one comment. So, two comments actually. First, I'm not a big fan of biometrics in in this way. So, we just discussed about two big hacks, uh, Equifax and Deloitte, and so on. So, the point is, you just have one print for those veins or for your heartbeat or for your eyes or when that is compromised you cannot change your password you cannot change your eyes your fingers your heartbeat or oh, we just go around the body we uh, then do so, like so arm veins and leg veins and and <laughs> that's not true because the idea here is whilst you can't change your fingerprint your fingerprint has to be alive and you have to be in that moment using your fingerprint. Now, what you might mean is that the fingerprint on the back end, so somebody's yeah, taken the key yeah, yeah, to your yeah, fingerprint, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, and that, yeah. that assumes that there's no ease, that yeah. someone doesn't come up with a way of just faking the pre presentation of it with, you know, just pumping something but through But I think a, the back end is more yeah, risky. Explain yeah, this the back is, end yeah, side this, of is, it. this is what I meant, because in order to authenticate you, they have a 
a copy or your signature, which could be your heartbeat, your foot, your foot, your footprint. <laughs> 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 Maybe that's the next step. The, your fingerprint or whatever. They have to have something to authenticate you against. And as we have seen, big, big, big companies get uh, hacked, attacked, and so on. That's one thing. And the second one was, I think it's innovation theater. You know, yeah, of uh, because I, uh, when uh, Lloyd did the heartbeat authentication two years ago, honestly, it went, it, it went like uh, it was hundred times, I think hundreds of times more uh, quoted than any other prototype we, we have done. And we were looking like, what is this? It's on TV in Israel. It's, I don't know. It was, uh, uh, and there was, it was an experiment in a room like this, you know, nothing else. And I think, you know, I completely, I'm completely, you know, um, sympathize with the whole innovation theater point. I think if it's solving a real problem, like when I call up my bank and then I can just say one sen- sentence and I go straight into uh, having a normal conversation with them rather than having to answer 50 security questions, that's, that's helpful. Um, but I mean, there's always potentially a way around it. I mean, I think it was six months ago or so there was a Finextra story about um, someone getting into an Atom Bank account by using uh, a picture of the person, um, rather, you know, rather sort of taking a selfie to get into the account. So I think there's, you know, if you you create it, there might potentially then just be more ways to hack into into someone's account. Biometrics are about ease of use, not necessarily increased security. And ease of use is is a really key point. And I, what I think about a proprietary bit of hardware from one vendor that isn't standardized, that isn't used by the technology companies, that isn't uh, low cost and available to everyone everywhere, it's really difficult to imagine what the customer journey is for that and i i can't remember to to uh, andra's point the the type of innovation theater i can't remember an event for clients that barclays has done that hasn't had this thing at it for some time and i think it appeals to a certain uh, middle middle-aged executive who goes oh it's slightly more secure than uh, fingerprints because you have to be alive oh wow but like and, and it doesn't change our business model. So it's that great kind of like piece of innovation that's a, you know, a technological breakthrough, something's a bit different. It doesn't change the way that I have to, you know, manage my business. This is great. So now I'm thinking like, as well as building and launching like proper propositions for banks, we should launch uh, like an innovation theatre division of 11FS. Uh, you know how much... Th- <laughs> so there was a famous quote by Warren... If you go, well, if you're going to really go for it, like, really go for it, it's like we won't even pretend that that division does anything interesting apart from the craziest tech stories that are going to get the most column inches. There's a famous quote by Warren Buffett that in the 1930s, because there were uh, several thousand car companies and by the 1950s there were seven, uh, that you could make more money uh, shooting horses than you could by starting a car company because your car company was likely to go bust but shooting horses was a profitable business model this is shooting stupid ideas that come out of innovation theater are a great way to stop burning money that you probably shouldn't be burning when your return on equity isn't great as a as a region this could be the next uh, emoji emoji wall you know just get all of these these different ones and get people to vote as to which one is the, the absolute yeah, they're, they're worst they're all going to be down the crazy <laughs> ends like we're going to have to recalibrate the emoji yeah, wall like into vomit bad, to like extra really vomit. bad to super bad so on that, like, let's leave on a positive note, because I sense that Simon's like, you know, you, you've, you've, you've reached that kind of frustration with the industry point now. The, but this story is the best thing ever, 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 ever. And I've got to thank Harriet for sending this to me because it was just unbelievable. There's a family of raccoons has shut down a Toronto bank. I haven't read this story. I don't care. A family of raccoons has shut down a Toronto bank. I think it's a bank branch, not, not an actual bank itself. But I love that in this day and age, a family of raccoons could be in there trying to steal crisps, you know, causing havoc. And it looks like, uh, so this comes from blogto.com. And let's try and read this one very, very quickly. Because it was news (laughs) just in. Hold on. We're recording a podcast and you're reading a new random story. I wish this isn't fake news as well. (laughs) (laughs) It was sent to us in real time. I don't care if it's fake news. Um, The branch manager offers some suggestions on nearby locations and ATMs due to some unexpected repairs that arose from a family of raccoons making our ceiling their new home. Oh. <laughs> 
So apparently the, the branch manager, Stephen Clark, offers customers suggestions on nearby locations at ATMs due to those unexpected repairs that arose from a family of raccoons making the ceiling their new home. The fallen RBC branch is expected to be closed until the end of October. Well, it's just a, a nice Canadian thing, isn't it? And a customer appreciation party will be held when it reopens. What Stephen Clark didn't say, which I expected to, to hear from, uh, from a Canadian bank, was sorry. Uh, and on that note this wraps up another new show as always if you want to get in touch you can find us on twitter at fintech insiders or on facebook on our fintech insider page if you like what you've heard this week don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and if we deserve it please leave us a good review on itunes those five star reviews really do help we believe digital transformation hasn't worked in the world and needs a challenger consultancy and we're it. We work with financial services companies to help them execute and deliver digital products that meet a real customer need. And like those innovation stories we've just spoken about. So check out 11fs.com to find out more. And don't forget to check back on our careers page, because as David says, he's spending most of his days doing interviews at the moment. Thanks for listening. And before we go, it'd be great to hear from our guests as to where you can find out more and find out what, what's happening. Valentina. Um, yeah, so if you uh, want to find out more about uh, Oak North, you can visit our website, uh, www.oaknorth.com. Uh, and we're on all the social channels as well. So Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, and if you want to connect with me directly, I'm on LinkedIn and at Val Christensen on Twitter. And you're head of marketing there? Yes, exactly. And Oak North is a lender. So uh, wh- why would I go and look to Oak North? So Oak North is a bank focused specifically on helping fast growth companies uh, scale up. So really businesses that are sort of past the startup phase, uh, earning sort of 5 million to 100 million turnover and looking for about half a million to 20 million uh, in terms of debt finance. Cool. And Andra? Well, they find me at 11FS for the near future anyway. Um, so if you want to build a bank, if you need <laughs> advice about your core banking architecture and so on, I'm here. The more I listen to Andra, the more I just get drawn into your world of like intrigue. It's fantastic. <laughs> and Simon, where can people find out about you? Oh, at S.Y. Taylor on Twitter. But don't forget, we have a sister show as well called uh, Blockchain Insider. And at Chain Insider on Twitter, you can find out more. You can find it in iTunes. Actually, Blockchain Insider is one of my favorite podcasts at the moment. And that's not nepotism. You're like being genuine. No, no, no. Really genuinely. It's such a bizarrely Wild West world of a subject. It fascinates. It should be like a soap or a Netflix series. It's just so, so crazy. And me, you can find me at at Jason Bates on Twitter. And of course, come and find us at 11fs.com. That's it for this week. Hopefully, we'll talk to you next week. Bye.